This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week there's good news and more good news. 2023 in review. It is the end of 2023. I'm really glad you added that bit. It, like, it, <laughs> it like, is the, the end. end. Like, Madeline knows there's an apocalypse coming now. <laughs> Interesting twist on dissecting dragons. We're actually uh, <laughs> the new soothsayers of the, <laughs> of the world. <laughs> oh God. Don't wish that on us as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the end of the year. Um, and it's been an interesting one. Um, now, every year we like to do a little roundup of the highlights of the last 12 months, uh, while still acknowledging a few of the not-so-shiny moments. Yeah, there's no way around it. 2023 has been a weird one in many ways. Yes. Um, well, <laughs> I mean, we, we welcome the year with one author coming back from the dead. Uh, while another author committed what is essentially career suicide in the most spectacularly stupid way um, at the end, towards the end of the year, thus completing the circle of life. <laughs> but never mind all that. There's a future episode for catching up on authors behaving badly, perhaps. Today's episode is about all the great stuff that happened in 2023, which you may not be aware about as obviously, as well as the dragon's favourite entries in film, TV and book form in speculative fiction, which we've got to say is not going to be an exhaustive list because there's been loads of stuff. And when put on the spot, both Madeline and I went, oh, God, we've got to come up with a list. <laughs> kind of a bit stunned. So, uh... We were both... And Jules mentioned something and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to put that on my list too. And we're both, like, <laughs> battling over certain things. <laughs> you've got to say what? So, um, yeah, we, we will do our best. Obviously, whenever we do a Dissecting Dragons recommendation, that is a favourite for the year, generally. Yeah. I think it's good for particular reasons. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to start with that pinch of salt. Uh, so the bad... Um, you can't really appreciate the good without acknowledging a little bit of the bad. So um, it would be quite disingenuous if we acted like the year has been unmitigatingly good. Yeah. Uh, 2023 kicked off with a 7.8 magnitude earthquake, which hit Turkey and Syria, who just did not have the type of infrastructure to withstand this type of natural disaster, as most countries would not. Hmm. Um, it was the worst earthquake to hit that area for over 100 years, and it caused a 190-mile fault line to form and various other disasters as well, yeah. um, which we're obviously not going to go into, but it was not a great way to start the year. No. Then we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is still ongoing. However, there are germs of hope on that one, so we'll touch on that a little bit later. 2023 has also seen record wild weather conditions around the world, with major storms forming in all seven ocean basins within one year, which is something that's been previously undocumented, as well as floods, fires and extreme heat events. You know, this is this is not great stuff and it is linked with climate change to a certain extent. Yeah. Most recently we had uh, the Hamas attack on the music uh, concert hall in Israel, where they killed and kidnapped many people, including children. And of course, Israel's inevitable and terrible retaliation against the Palestinians. Yeah, we're not 
proposing a po- you know what the more i hear about that and the more i read about it the less i feel i am qualified to comment on that entire situation so i'm not going to touch it yeah um uh, other than to say the loss on both sides is, is terrible and i think it's awful to have to watch this yeah and i think unfold. that at the end of the day the people the people who are hurt the most are the ones who are the innocents who are getting caught up in the middle of it yeah who really have you know are just trying to get on with their lives so yeah. now uh, in choosing to move on to more positive events um it's important that you recognize we're not minimizing the effects of the negative ones it's just that the 24-hour news cycle is negatively biased and most of those events are getting enough coverage already what you might not have seen as much is all of the good stuff that happened in 2023 so let's get into that shall we yeah first off our first topic if you like is let's talk climate yes so the air is getting cleaner in the us in (laughs) europe and yes even in china and i'm not just picking on china there's good reasons for saying this which will come out later Um, the trend is clear you can see further and breathe easier with each year that passes fine particulate matter pollution has fallen by around 41 percent in the us since 1990 which is saving 370,000 lives a year. Uh, good news for asthmatics and people with any kind of breathing difficulties. Yep. That means that around 30,000 people this month are not dropping dead from gunk in their lungs, which I think we can all acknowledge is a good thing. Yes. Uh, European clean air laws are now saving 700,000 lives a year. That's 58,000 a month in the same time frame. Meanwhile, China, who have got reasons to sit on the naughty step as well but china is also soaking up its smog so fast in part by planting a belgium-sized amount of forest every year uh, that it has achieved the same percentage reduction as the us but just in the last 10 years rather than 30 years which i think also deserves a round of applause for china yeah that's pretty damn amazing so number two is we're in the first year of the fusion age so the the breakthrough nuclear fusion experiment announced by lawrence livermore national laboratory a month ago has been compared to the wright brothers first flight at kitty hawk that event didn't change the world immediately but it did lead (laughs) ineluctably am i saying that right (laughs) Uh, it led eventually i guess (laughs) yeah sorry But it did lead to our present day reality of commercial flights everywhere. If we start to see nuclear fusion reactors appear in a few decades time, providing virtually limitless clean fuel for the entire human race, we can say it started here. And if you're now feeling nervous about this because of events like Chernobyl, uh, I can't fucking speak. Let me try that again. (laughs) And if you're feeling nervous about this because of events like Chernobyl, uh, nuclear fusion is a completely different reaction to nuclear fission. Um, As Jules will explain. (laughs) Turning to Jules now for the scientific explanation. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be a very potted explanation. just because we don't have time and also i am not a physicist i'm a hobbyist when it comes to physics but um basically the nuclear reactors most of us if you grew up in the 80s that we were terrified with with basically nuclear fallout etc uh are all based on nuclear 
uh, fission, which means what you're doing is you're splitting an atom in order to release lots of energy. Mm. And it, it's basically uh, a largely uncontrolled, well, it's controlled because it's within a reactor, but it, it's largely uncontrolled. Once you start doing it, it starts a chain reaction. Yeah. Um, and then you've got to have ways of stopping it, etc. Yeah. Um, which I, you know, I'm not going to explain the nuclear reactor right now because it's just not, it's not really relevant to this part of the conversation. <laughs> um, nuclear fusion is different. Nuclear fusion is when you combine two atoms to create a larger atom, and this also produces energy. What they've done now is they, this initial experiment I was reading about is really fascinating. They've managed to actually produce this in a way that produced, I think it was just enough energy to like light up a light bulb for a few seconds, basically, the equivalent amount, which doesn't sound very impressive, but this was something that was like glaringly out of our reach only a few years ago. Yeah. You know, it was very hypothetical. We're talking the stuff of Star Trek here. Um, this kind of ability to create to to do this 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 reaction the fusion reaction rather than fission mm. um is the sort of thing that could potentially uh power exploratory space vessels or you know provide everybody again with clean energy without you know completely tanking our environment etc so it has i'm sure you know it's got downsides but it's got you know, there's, there's a lot of great potential here this is the stuff of the future so it is something that's worth celebrating yeah just like the wright brothers getting airborne for for about 10 minutes was kind of like oh actually maybe we could fly if we had the right equipment yeah it's it's the beginning of something very very exciting yeah Okay, so number three, the world is weaning itself off Russian fuel. I don't want to just pick on Russia, by the way. Um, it's really the Russian government that have, that have kind of caused this issue uh, with Ukraine. The Russian people are largely being kept in the dark and fed bullshit, from what mm. I've under I understand. Um, but, it, you know, we say Russia as a country. So it, this is kind of more politics than climate, but it does play into the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, weirdly, this this idea of, you know, we must wean ourselves off Russian natural gas and other things has meant that many European countries certainly have been forced to look for alternate means of, of power, of energy, mm -hmm. which means that they have, yes, they've, they've now got a trade deal in place, many of them with the US for natural gas, but it's meant more of us, more of us, I say us, the European countries in general, have gone, shit, we need something that can't be taken away from us. So they're investing even more in renewable sources. Yeah. So in, in respect, it's got two effects here. It's great because it puts economic pressure on a country which is illegally occupying a sovereign nation, mm -hmm. whilst also ensuring we are not beholden in the future to a country which at present does not share the common view that you cannot march into your neighbor's land and just try to take it from them but also it's pushing us once more towards green and renewable energy which you know is not a bad thing no <laughs> definitely not a bad obviously thing. it's not a bad thing <laughs> i object <laughs> i don't like the color green that's a lie i love the color green and i love green energy um okay speaking of <laughs> there are more electric cars on the road than in 2022. In fact, it's not just more, there are a lot more. Um, it may not look like it just yet, unless you live in a country like Norway, which just passed a milestone where 80% of cars sold there last year were electric. But we are in the midst of a revolution on our roads. Electric vehicles are going mainstream and the trend is spiking. 
there were 7.8 million EVs sold around the world in 2022, a year-on-year -year growth of 68%, blasting through projections even as auto sales overall fell 1%. We're now in a world where one in 10 new cars sold is actually electric. Now in China, where EV sales have doubled in a year, that number is one in every three. This is really, really good news about the country with the largest carbon emissions. Yeah. Now, even in the US, which is lagging behind, car tax and the IRS mean that operating an electric car is cheaper than a petrol one. The sidelining of combustion engines is happening sooner than we knew. And the nice thing is that the more that this kind of technology is sold, uh, the more it's produced, the cheaper it is actually going to become. Um, so this is no longer going to, going to be a luxury which is only reserved for people who have, you know, a, a very good income. As this continues to progress, it is going to become more and more available for everyone, which is brilliant. Definitely. Uh, okay, uh, number five, coal use is dying out. So having a fleet full of electric vehicles won't happen, help the climate if the electricity in them came from, you know, well, I say dirty energy, but I don't really like that term, but basically non-renewable <laughs> energy. Dirty energy. <laughs> um, from non-renewable sources. So uh, luckily, or, you know, thankfully, coal makes up less of a share of our electric grids than ever before. Um, in the United States, it's just started its first year in history with renewable energy generating more power than coal. That is amazing. And yes, I feel bad for people who were still working in the mines in places like Appalachia, etc. Um, but this is something that does have to change. It's going to happen. So we need to change. We need to change it sensibly, ideally putting jobs in place for people who worked in those industries before. Yeah, um, because that stuff is going to run out eventually. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, around the world, coal plants are getting hard to fund and even harder to insure. So, you know, even when you cannot trust people's own future self-interest to promote their interests, now, good old dirty lucre will absolutely do it. You make something too expensive to do and you make something else cheaper to do, people will do the cheaper thing. Let's make the good thing cheaper is basically how yes. this is working. <laughs> um, this is where China is unfortunately sitting on the naughty list because, you know, basically they've got record highs in coal usage and production. However, if more of their vehicles are turning towards electric cars and they're clearly concentrating on planting forest, which will remove the carbon emissions from the atmosphere, um, if we get them to work on their wetland as well, that would be fantastic. Um, then they, they ultimately they're probably going to move away from coal. That's the one thing you can say about China is their industry is going through periods of evolution in in years that took the rest of the world decades yeah yeah absolutely uh now again on the same kind of topic solar power is expanding so in 2023 solar panel manufacturers churned out almost 295 gigawatts worth of solar panels in 2022 a 45% increase in capacity in just one year. The 2023 forecast, 319 gigawatts, may be an underestimate. The projection for 2025 says that... Um, blah, 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 blah. 
The projection for 2025 says that year will see 940 gigawatts worth of panels built, or roughly as much solar power as exists in the entire world right now. And is it the cheapest energy source out there? Yes! <laughs> it's now 33% cheaper than natural gas in the US, and it will only get cheaper as the IRA's solar installation incentives kick in this year. It's also cheaper in China, whose nearly half of the world's solar panels were installed last year. Yeah. So this is a classic example of people voting with their feet, where they're like, okay, the individuals are are saying, actually, it's cheaper for us if we just get solar panels installed. Yeah. And I think, don't quote me on this, but I also think that there have also been recent changes which mean that... Uh, up to a certain point, solar panels, um, once they were used, they couldn't really be recycled or sort of the material just ended up being disregarded. But I think that's actually changed as well. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So that is very cool. <laughs> Definitely. So, you know, we're talking a lot about energy, but it's been a really good year for changing how we use energy. So this one is, you know, basically energy is more renewable than ever. Um, take Texas, for example. It's not just solar, wind, hydro, and all other renewable sources are on the march, even in the depths of winter. Okay, Texas winter's probably not quite the same as ours, for example. No. <laughs> um, or Canada's, in fact. I love that last year I was saying, oh, oh God, it's minus 12 degrees here. And I had a friend in Canada who's like, yeah, that's really cute. It's like minus 40 here. <laughs> <laughs> Moving aside from that. Um, you chose to live in bear country. <laughs> <laughs> in the United States, battery production is going strong and is also about to be supercharged by, you know, the basically their... There are. I was saying the IRA. I don't mean the IRA at all. I'm basically, their their um, their inland revenue. Um, that makes storing, which you know, is going to make storing power easier, which lets local grids supply us with more clean energy. According to the United States Energy Information Agency, renewables share across the country will rise to 23% in 2023. Obviously, you don't have the final figures quite yet. Mm. Um, well, natural gas usage is falling to 37% from where it was. Um, but, you know, these numbers kind of mask a huge surprise. You know, Texas is often considered kind of a, in terms of attitudes, kind of a backwater. Yeah. Um, even though it, it's a weird mixture of, of, you know, traditional values and, you know, very forward thinking I've, I've found from the people who I've spoken to. Um, but renewable energy in Texas is growing so fast, it's set to beat natural gas this year. Texas, uh, basically the poster child for carbon-based fuel, is outpacing California. <laughs> wow. Let that sink in a moment. When it comes to renewable installations, mostly in wind power, it's simply cheaper and easier now to make money exploiting the state's abundant sunshine and fast-moving air than to keep going at the non-renewable, expensive and dangerous activity that is drilling. So, I mean, obviously Texas were kind of like, yeah, it's oil country, the, the black gold kind of thing. Um, and, and yet it's like, well, we've got all this sun and we've got all this wind. What if we just used that instead and didn't have massively <laughs> risky jobs? <laughs> we all make loads of money out of it. So again, I actually don't care whether something's been driven by altruism or if it's been driven by cash, as long as it's been driven in the right direction, ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like it to be altruism, but 
Fuck it, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, number eight. The ozone layer is healing, and it should soon heal even faster. So, remember that time that humanity almost killed Earth's main layer of protection against UV radiation? Yeah. Well, I do. <laughs> I don't remember that. That was the buzzword when I was when I was growing up. <laughs> yep, same. Well, a UN report released this month says that we can pat ourselves on the back. Our efforts to heal the ozone layer by banning dangerous CFs, uh, CFC gases in 1987. Sorry. By banning dangerous CFC gases in a 1987 treaty has actually worked. The hole we punched in that layer is on course to completely heal over by mid-century, and progress should be even faster now that the US Senate has ratified an amendment to the international treaty tightening curbs on the HFCs. That's another nasty atmospheric gas used in AC units, which also contributes to climate change. Yeah, obviously CFC was kind of the buzzword back when very early 90s, end of the 80s, uh, chlorofluorocarbons. They used to be in aerosol cans. We used to just randomly put this dangerous gas in aerosol cans to help squirt out smelly stuff. Um, HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons. Both of them are really, really bad because they start dissolving our atmosphere and then the sun gets through and that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> Again, potted science. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, and our final bit on climate stuff, although if you want to find out all the stuff that's been going on with the climate, I highly recommend setting aside a couple of hours and having a really good Google because we've hit so many milestones this year, it's amazing. We really have. Um, <laughs> the surging renewables brought relief to the UK. Uh, so again, this is kind of a bit more sort of finance and climate, but basically green energy has overtaken gas as the UK's leading source of electricity this winter, sparing the country from an even worse energy crisis. Um, basically according to the analytics and this is from the energy and climate intelligence unit uh, which basically said that offshore wind was leading the charge it doesn't surprise me we've got some really windy areas around the coast of britain very windy <laughs> yeah according to the energy and climate intelligence unit power generated by renewables reached 34 terawatt hours between the 1st of October 2022 and the 13th of January 2023. So that's pretty damn good that year. And that's two terawatt hours more than gas produced itself. So it's it's producing more energy. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the thing that people perhaps don't take on board when we say we, we need to find sources of clean energy. We can now get light by pressing a switch. Um, and that's the least of what we do with electricity. And mm. nobody wants to go back to the time when you had to work by candlelight or rush light or you didn't have any light at all. Yeah. Um, or heat. Heat is a really important one, depending on where you are in the world. And it's just, you can't go back. You can't go back on the things that have been really off already, that are already out there because nobody nobody's going to get on board with that, really. Yeah. Um, so an alternate way of achieving those same objectives is essential. So, yeah, it's like the, this whole thing of generating the same amount of power using gas-burning power plants, it claimed would have re required the equivalent of 7.4 uh, million homes gas use for the entire winter. Essentially, and I'm sure we're not alone, energy prices have soared in the UK. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's put a real pinch on things to the point where the government even allowed 
an, you know, an allowance of energy towards your energy reduction, well, an allowance of funds towards your energy bills last year, mm. because they knew people were going to struggle that badly. Uh, you practically have to pry something out of our current government with a spanner yeah. or a wrench. So the fact that they went, oh, God, this is going to cause an even bigger problem for us. Here's some cash is... Uh, surprising. Is, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's very surprising and kind of a big clue. Yeah. Um, the fact that we've managed to reduce the cost of energy by using renewables is, is amazing. I don't think... I'm probably not putting enough of a cap on this, enough of a spin on it, so that people are really getting the full impact. But again, you can find a lot of this stuff if you want to. Yeah. You just have to go looking for it. Okay, so uh, from one scientific uh, sort of viewpoint, we're going to look at a different type of science and we're going to talk about science in medicine. So, number one. Reacher, blah, 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 blah. Mm, good. So number one, researchers discover a black hole that's 13.2 billion years old. <laughs> I'm going to admit I included this just because I thought it was kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> so researchers using data from NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory and the James Webb Space Telescope confirmed the existence of the universe's oldest black hole recorded to date. It is estimated to have been formed about 470 million years after the Big Bang and is 10 times bigger than the black hole in the Milky Way. So view from a distance, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Not somewhere to go and check out on the weekend. But it's uh, kind of cool that we've managed to see this. This is something that I actually kind of forgot to put down. But the, another thing that I would have included that I'm just really excited about is where they have discovered evidence of what is essentially built human habitation that predates Homo sapiens. Yes. And predates Neanderthals. And I'm like, I'm so excited about this. It doesn't appear to be a hoax. This is a genuine thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, very excited. Talk about that another time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there were giants. Uh, no, anyway. Um, number two in this. Um, Virgin Galactic makes its first space tourism flight. Look, I'm really mixed about this one because on one hand, it's like, this is kind of cool. On the other hand, it's like, I don't want to go into space when I, take it, when I fly somewhere. But it does actually really shorten the distance if you go, you sort of launch yourself into orbit and then you circle around to the bit of the Earth you want and then you come back down again, which is essentially what this is doing. Yeah. Um, also, this is a space tourism flight, so it's kind of, we'll take you into the atmosphere, you can have a look at the stars and then we'll land again kind of thing. So you're not having a space trip, but you are kind of going in space, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, the Virgin Galactic flew its first group of tourists into space in August. Three ticket holders, including a mother-daughter duo. What a bonding experience. And <laughs> an Olympian, so Olympic winner, were launched into space from New Mexico in the VSS Unity, a rocket-powered space plane. Hundreds of people are on the waiting list for future flights, according to Virgin Galactic. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, really. Yeah. Um, tickets are currently priced at $450,000, which is actually a lot cheaper than I expected, to be honest. Yeah, to be, to be honest, that is actually cheaper than, than what it could have been. 
It's um, the thing with stuff like that is that even if you personally don't care about that kind of thing and you wouldn't want to go, technology like this is really important because whenever we make changes um, like this, they can actually lead to something else. If you think about how much of the technology we rely on today came about because of stuff that was being created during World War um, Two, yeah. For example, everything like this, regardless of whether you're excited about the actual space travel or not, can, could and can and ha is having massive effects on future technologies which are going to have very different kind of uses. So even if you're not big into the whole kind of space tourism, that doesn't mean that this isn't very exciting news. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Sorry, if, do you want to take the... Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so uh, speaking of space, India lands a spacecraft near the moon's south pole. So India became the first country to successfully land near the moon's south pole, which is a shadowed area of rugged terrain where prior missions by India and Russia both ended in crashes. Now, India's uh, Chandrayaan three spacecraft touched down about 370 miles from the South Pole in August. The landing made India the fourth country to launch spacecraft that reached the lunar surface after the former Soviet Union, the United States and China. Scientists have been eager to explore the area after traces of water in the form of ice were discovered there. So that is really cool. Yeah, well, what this is sort of saying is basically if we want to go into interstellar travel, which is something that is kind of aspirational for us mm -hmm. as a species, we do not have the technology at the moment to just build a spaceship and set off um, because every, you know, every 500 grams of weight or whatever you carry uh, has a, an equal cost in fuel and yeah. you can't go very far without enough fuel to get back. So everything's a very closely calculated mathematically now theoretically we know we can get to the moon if you can get to the moon and there is frozen water there mm -hmm. that we can extract water from then you don't have to take so much water there might be other things there too you might find sources of a type of methane which could be or helium which could mm -hmm. be potentially used to power an engine so that would mean taking less fuel so while this seems like baby steps, and I guess it kind of is in a way, this is an incredibly important potential discovery. Yeah. Also, being able to get access to more helium in general is a pretty cool idea. Yeah. We're running out, guys. <laughs> we keep using it for balloons, and we really shouldn't be. It's, <laughs> it's like an essential ingredient in MRIs. We, we really should not be using helium in balloons. And yet it's so much fun. Uh... <laughs> Okay, um, so if that takes us, we're still on space travel, I'm afraid, guys, but um, uh, number four, the first methane-fueled rocket launches into space. <laughs> Madeline's laughing because methane is one of the gases that is emitted during flatulence, but actually we have an excess amount of methane, whether it's the right type of methane, because of the, the over-farming of cows. We need about half the amount of cow farming across the world that we've got, really. Um, anyway, a methane-fueled Zook-2 rocket created by the Chinese private space company Landspace reached orbit in July. 
Uh, although it is a greenhouse gas, methane is widely viewed as more environmentally friendly than the standard kerosene-based fuel that is used for most space flights. Uh, this is true. If we're talking about reducing fossil fuels, then you know, rocket fuel is a very highly refined form of fossil fuels, ultimately. Yeah. If you can find a way of fueling spaceflight with something like methane, um, please don't imagine loads of cows being lined up. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. <laughs> fed a very rich, silage-rich diet that makes them windy. Um, I'm sure it, that's not quite how that works. But, <laughs> but however, sure? it, it is... <laughs> I'm 90% sure that that's not how that You don't know what's going on in NASA. <laughs> if they've got herds and herds of cows that are being pr supposed to be farting into an engine, then I, <laughs> I give up, you know, that's it. I've stopped my interest in science. <laughs> Still, it is interesting, once again, if we want a viable space program, we need to find uh, renewable sources of energy for that sort of thing as well. And there's various different suggestions, but some of them are not feasible yet because we just don't have the technology yet. Yeah. Some really clever person who understands the maths will one day hit on the correct equation. I fully believe that, but um, it's it, when it happens. Yeah. Not if, but when. Yes. Okay, so uh, number four, scientists successfully... Not number four, number five. Scientists successfully extract rocks from the Earth's mantle. Unfortunately, when they went down to the centre of the Earth, they didn't find dinosaurs. But <laughs> at least not alive centre, ones. To be honest. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> so after says uh, after several unsuccessful attempts dating back to 1961, researchers drilled into the Earth's mantle in May, retrieving sample after sample of the coveted dense rock for the first time. Scientists deployed an ocean drilling vessel to a spot where the mantle had been pushed up closer to the ocean floor because of the tectonic activity near the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, uh, an area known as the Moho. The samples are giving geologists a more pristine look at what exactly lies under the Earth's crust. And I'm not going to lie, I did almost say something really rude there. Just go. <laughs> the samples are giving geologists something. They're very excited oh, about it. <laughs> seriously, this, this is so paraphrased. This is basically, when I read the article, it was like, yeah, this is a geologist's wet dream, basically, was yep. what they were saying. Yeah, this is... The, <laughs> the geologists are having a really good time and we should probably leave them alone for a bit. Yeah, they would like to be left alone with the Earth's mantle. Thank you very much. Um, if you're not familiar with that, obviously you've got the core of the Earth, which we believe is molten lava. We don't have any reason to think otherwise. Then you have the mantle, which we don't really know what it is, but it does seem to be very crystalline in structure based on this. Um, they they extracted a lot of periodite-type substance, um, which, you know, gets made into jewellery. Not yep. from the Earth's mantle, but generally gets pushed up. Um, and then you've got the crust, which is the general bit that goes over the top that is the bit that we normally dig into. And we never usually get all the way through it because it's pretty thick. And it's a good job it is because you wouldn't want the volcano starting every time you plant potatoes or anything. No. Uh, but yeah, the geologists are very, very excited about this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> super excited. <laughs> super, super excited. Okay. And you know bit... what? Good for them. They don't, get a, they don't get a win very often. No. You go, geologists. <laughs> you do you. <laughs> 
Okay, um, number six, a uh, little bit of history as well here. So a 3D scan of the Titanic wreckage shows more detail than ever before. I mean, this is one of those wrecks that people just can't leave alone. There's the sheer fascination of it all, even yeah. though it's one where we've got pretty good records of what was on board. Yeah. <laughs> and what it looked like. So a full-size 3D scan of the Titanic wreckage was revealed for the first time in May, showing detailed images of both the ship and its three-mile debris field. The wreckage is difficult to access and even harder to f photograph in the murky depths some 12,500 feet below the surface of the Atlantic Ocean. Not surprising because it's pretty fucking dark down that far. Yeah. Um, also, the pressure would be insane at that depth as well. So the more than 715,000 still images were captured by Magellan Limited, a deep water seabed mapping company. And this is more than a century after the ship sank in 1912. So again, this obviously you've got this technology which can be used for other things, but effectively sort of doing a 3D scan of the Titanic is still pretty damn cool. Yeah, it is pretty damn cool. <clears throat> okay, so something else which is pretty damn cool is that a man with paralysis walks again using his thoughts. So with the aid of brain and spinal implants, a man with paralysis was able to walk again more than a decade after his injury by using his thoughts, according to a study published in May in the journal Nature. The implants, which use artificial intelligence technology, decoded electrical signals in his brain and sent messages to his muscles, allowing him to stand and walk with, with the aid of a walker. Although spinal implants have achieved similar results in the past, a button had to be pushed to activate the signals each time. So this is really exciting. Yeah, basically, there's no cure at the moment for a severed spinal cord. Once that nerve connection is down, it's down. Yeah. And there's been all kinds of innovations to try and get something, including things like stem cell research, which may well bear fruit in the future. This is... a uh, a, t a very low-key type of sort of not artificial intelligence but it would have come out of the same branch of research and you're skipping the whole need for the the nerve signals uh, along the spinal cord mm. by by effectively just trans thinking i need to walk transmitting from one implant to another implant um so that you are still getting the signals through even though your know, signal pathway in the spinal cord is, is no longer there yeah so yeah i do think that's amazing it is. It is really, really very, very cool. Yep. Um, okay, number eight. Uh, the United States have been having a significant amount of wins against cancer. So there's some encouraging health news, uh, basically, that's literally come out this week. Uh, cancer death rates have reportedly fallen by a third since 1991. That's according to the American Cancer Society, hmm. um, which attributes the decline to early detection, improved treatments and less smoking. Uh, the American Cancer Society also recorded an astounding 65% reduction in cervical cancer rates amongst women aged 20 to 24 who were the first to receive the human papillomavirus vaccine. Yeah. So that is amazing. And, you know, that wasn't a vaccine that was routinely offered when I was at school because it hadn't been invented. And I don't yeah. think it had for you either, had it? So it's it's one of those things where it's quite a difficult detection thing and... Um, or rather it's 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 a silent disease so people don't detect it and if they slip with things like going for cervical smears and things which yeah. you know can be easy to do because it's not the most fun thing in the world um, 
something that pre prevents you getting it in the first place and then you then getting the rogue cells etc afterwards it is amazing mm -hmm. the fact that it's had that result does prove that the vaccine is doing its job yes yeah stay positive madeline don't think about anti-vaxxers okay uh, sorry. <laughs> no it is it's this is very very positive okay all right finally covid is rolling back so there was a troubling spike in COVID-19 cases at the beginning of the year. With yet more new variants making the rounds, health officials around the US were braced for a rough month. Since January 5th, however, every trend line is in the right direction. Deaths, hospitalization, cases, and positive tests. It's not the state of equilibrium required for authorities to declare COVID officially endemic rather than a pandemic, but it is a very encouraging sign. And European countries are seeing the same trend happening over here. Yeah. So it's not gone. It's never going to go now. It's going to be part of our, our biome, if you like. It's always going to be something that's there. But it... Yeah. The, the early danger of it is more or less gone. Yeah. Unless you're particularly susceptible. So, I mean, that's definitely a win. Yeah. Okay, let's talk history and politics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Remember, we're staying positive, guys. We're staying positive. Uh, okay, so number one, Ukraine is still winning. Uh, this is this is really a David and Goliath story, really. Mm -hmm. um, a nation that had been invaded by its neighbour, one of the world's most feared military superpowers, and yet beat it back with basically indomitable spirit. They absolutely refused to back down. And those those crucial first few days were, you know, insanely important. Mm. Um, and, you know, a, and a steadily increasing amount of technical support from other countries. Um, Ukraine's slow mo mo sorry, the Ukraine's slow motion success against Russia has been going on for so long that it's quite easy to miss it especially in the winter when progress is slower. And let's be honest, uh, other countries going to war with each other have kind of taken over the news lately. Yeah. Um, but, you know, don't be fooled. Ukraine is still winning in 2023. We're at the point now where Russia is running so low on ammunition because, again, there's sanctions against it, no normal trade, apart from apart from certain parts of sort of, you know, Iran and etc who are willing to sell arms to them, and China, again. But that's another story. But they, they are running so low on ammunition, they're having to dig up 40-year-old shells. So shells from the Cold War, which are probably not in great condition and are more dangerous to dig up than they are to use. Yeah. Um, the US, Poland, and even the once reluctant Germany have decided to supply Ukraine with tanks. Uh, the UK got in on that pretty bloody quickly. Uh, that doesn't make us better. It just means we got, on it, got in on it quicker. Um, I understand Germany's reluctance to do anything with a war in Europe. Let's, yeah. let's face it. <laughs> um, and the United States is set to send long-range missiles that could help Ukraine retake Crimea, which was an outcome that would have been unthinkable a year ago, and obviously something Russia really doesn't want. So I am, I am sort of, you know, cheerleading for Ukraine here, although the best outcome would be a peaceful solution between both countries. Yeah. ideally for Russia to back down and uh, Putin to disappear from power would be the best thing um, yes in my personal belief 
<laughs> I'm not arguing with you. <laughs> but second to that, Ukraine sort of winning and not having to give up its homeland is, is, is more important. Yeah. Okay, next, inflation is finally coming down. So the vertigo-inducing rise in prices that we call inflation, the thing we were worried about for pretty much all of 2022, well, it hasn't vanished, but it is easing faster than we feared. So prices of consumer goods rose by 5% in December, um, an improvement on November's 7% inflation. In fact, inflation has been falling for six months in a row. So barring any sudden new shocks in the economy, it's falling as you read this. Not as we read this. <laughs> you're reading our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> as, I read this. as you're listening. Um, inflation could drop as low as 2% per month by the end of 2023. Which, okay, admittedly, we're still recording this in December, but... That's not very far off. No. Um, most of these figures are taken from the, the US Federal Bureau of uh, Finance, I believe. I might not be called that, but that's essentially where it's come from. Um, but the US does kind of take the temperature for when you're talking for things like global economy. There will be variations country by country, but we should be seeing a similar trend here in the UK and across Europe and some of the other countries as well. Yeah. Okay, uh, number three. Looted treasures are being returned to their countries of origin. So Hooray! <laughs> Germany signed a deal to return 1,100 Benin bronzes. Now, the Benin bronzes were looted from Nigeria by British soldiers in 1897 and distributed into public and private collections across Europe. Um, Germany obviously wants to right a wrong from colonial history, and that started a groundswell. It was the important one person has to move first moment, and mm. that was Germany. Um, museums and universities with Benin bronzes in the UK, plus the Smithsonian in America, followed suit. A Houston museum then returned a looted sarcophagus to Egypt, and though the British Museum is dithering about its Benin collection, it is in negotiations with the Greek government about returning the Elgin marbles. It was also very noticeable that during the coronation of the new king and queen in May this year, um, that Camilla bucked tradition and did not wear a crown containing the famous Koh-i-Noor diamond. It's possible that there are behind-the-scenes negotiations for the return of that and other parts of the crown jewels, although in this case there's going to be a three-way argument because India, Pakistan and Afghanistan are all claiming that diamond. But that's, yeah. that's someone else's headache, to be honest. Yeah. So anyway, it's early days for what is likely to be a multi-decade process of deciding where looted treasures sh should go and who is going to get on board because some of Europe's been quite quiet about it. <laughs> They're sitting very still. Yeah. Um, but the museum world's ethical arrows are starting to point in the right direction. I will just add here, however, that there are plenty of things in both the British Museum and various other museums across the UK and Europe which were there legally, which were legally bought. Now, if you want to have an argument about whether they were bought in a situation where someone didn't know the value of what they were selling, you might be right. But mm -hmm. a lot of things were actually legally acquired. So you can't assume that everything in the British Museum or various other museums across the rest of the world were just stolen. But the things yeah. that were stolen, perhaps it might be nice to give those back. Yes. And it's also important to recognise that sometimes these things are going to take a while because 
it's not an easy answer of just saying, okay, we'll just return it, because then the question is, who do you return it to? And also understanding that depending on who you decide to return it to, that could spark any number of kind of responses, sort of claims of favouritism, even conflict. So these things should take time uh, where appropriate, and it's really positive to see these changes happening. So don't be impatient with it, guys. The important thing is that we are seeing movement. (laughs) Yeah, it is a political nightmare. I will say, though, if you are in the UK and you want to see the Elgin Marbles, go to the British Museum now, because chances are they're not going to be there very much longer. Um, Take advantage of it while you can. Uh, They should go back to where they were, because there's no two ways about it. The Elgin Marbles were an out-and-out art theft. Yeah. Um, Probably one of the most famous ones in history, and it's a (laughs) little bit of embarrassment that we've still got them. (laughs) They are amazing, but it's kind of embarrassing at the same time. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> so next little bit of uh, things shifting, big news, um, is women have voted in a major Vatican meeting. So a Vatican assembly of 300 bishops from across the globe, including nuns and lay women, who for the first time had voting rights in the... Um, try this again. So a Vatican assembly of 300 bishops from across the world included nuns and lay women who, for the first time, had voting rights in the Synod. Is it Synod or Synod? I'm pretty sure it's Synod. Synod, yeah. So topics of discussion included the advancement of women in church roles, with some priests even supporting the ordination of women deacons, a much debated topic among Catholics. Yeah. Now, while probably quite a few people are going, how is it possible that they're still having this attitude towards women in the Catholic Church? Can I point out that the Catholic Church grew out of the original patriarchy and has taken a very, very long time to arrive in the 21st century with the rest of us? Um, And, you know, I, I am not a big fan of the Catholic Church, but I have met a lot of good people who are Catholics, and a lot of good has also been done by the Catholic Church, as well as a lot of lot of evil. Um, I would like to celebrate the good and, you know, applaud them for, you know, kind of embracing the equal rights movement or starting to. Yeah. This, this is not easy. This is a system that was very deliberately set up to be exclusionary. Yeah. Um, and towards a particular type of white man. Yeah. So, baby, baby steps, steps. Baby steps. Are still steps. <laughs> yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, okay, and a, an unusual one, really, because it, it may not be one that you really think about unless you're living it. But uh, this this is the case of ethnic segregation in England and Wales is waning. So there's a recent study which reveals that ethnic segregation is, you know lessening in England and Wales. Probably England and Wales were the only countries that were included in this study. It's probably across the board with the rest of the UK as well. Hmm. Um, As basically neighbourhoods are becoming more mixed according to an analysis of the 2021 census. Uh, The findings which were published in the Geographical Journal confirm the steady decline in segregation noted in in all consensuses Consensus <laughs> in all consensuses <laughs> since nineteen ninety one. Residential segregation of all ethnic groups is is on is is on its way down. 
Yeah. At the local level, many more neighbourhoods are ethnically diverse and diversity has been spreading out to new locales. The authors of the study said their work provided a nuanced picture from the latest census and challenged the damaging minority versus majority rhetoric that followed its publication. Now, on the surface, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, that's OK. Um, but really, this is kind of important because what we don't really want is, again, exclusionary mindsets where once the people live in one place and once the people live in another. What we want predominantly overall is everybody to be a citizen of England or Wales or, you know, Great Britain, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have your ethnicity and that be secondary to the fact that you are part of this, this place and everybody gets treated equally and gets equal opportunities. That's what we should be working towards. So getting rid of this them and us mindset is incredibly important. And the fact that the stats are starting to show that this is happening because these neighbourhoods are mixing together is you know it's quite something yeah absolutely it's it's really really gratifying and you've got to think about the big knock-on effect particularly with regards to how much the us and them mentality has affected politics mindset and everything and and how that's had a domino effect on so many other parts of life so starting to see it so now we're seeing a trend where hopefully that's going to lessen we might see a lot of other positive changes too. So it's really, really good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Finally, in this little section, uh, the ultra-rich have actually been pleading for higher taxes. Uh, Yes, you heard that correctly. So 200 members of the ultra-rich asked for higher taxes this week when they signed an open letter calling for greater taxation to tackle inequality. The coterie of 205 millionaires and billionaires included actor Mark Ruffalo and Disney heiress Abigail Disney, who signed the letter ahead of the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos. It comes as research from Oxfam revealed that almost two-thirds of the new wealth amassed since the start of the pandemic has gone to the richest 1%. Um, A quote we have here is, There's only so much stress any society can take. Only so many times mothers and fathers will watch their children go hungry while the ultra-rich contemplate their growing wealth, read the letter. The solution is plain for all to see. Yes, our global representatives have to tax us the ultra-rich, and you have to start now. Yeah, this is, again, quite a shift in mindset. Uh, You can read this letter online if you just look for this um, open letter. Yeah. You can read the whole thing. It's not massively long. It is very illuminating. And this is one of those things where I think if you have people who are leading by example, particularly people with clout. Yeah. That's that is important. I I do think that um, there should be a, a meritocracy, but I also believe there should be a base standard where everyone can live comfortably, where nobody falls below that standard. Mm. If you want extra, then maybe that should be the merit- meritocratic part of it. And yeah. beyond a certain level, people probably don't. I mean, if you if we're back to the whole, if you have more money than you can spend in your lifetime, then you've probably got too much money. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to earn it, but I think I think maybe you've got a duty to do something with it that's a bit more beneficial than to just yourself. Yeah. My... I think one of the, the big things is that there's been this kind of 
this idea about taxation and and this kind of push against taxation because when there have been increases in tax the people that it's hit has actually tended to be the middle class yeah which has actually been very detrimental because it, it starts to you know it 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 has a it has a big effect and it starts to kind of push this two class system um and you can you know you can say well there's nothing wrong with being working class and that's not what i'm saying at all i'm not saying ah that we should etc um what i'm pointing out is that the whole concept of having the middle class is that there needs to be a ladder there needs to be an opportunity for people to be able to earn more money and to be able to live comfortably and to be able to have fun and enjoy themselves. And when we create a, a, a sort of this two, you know, this two tiered system instead, it, a basic, it basically means that either you're born into wealth or you happen to be, get incredibly lucky. Um, yeah. And there's and there's no between, which you don't want. There always has to be a ladder. There always has to be. And so this push towards taxing the ultra-rich is really, really important because they are the ones who actually tend to get greater tax breaks and they are the, actually the ones who can af really afford it without kind of being pushed down, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move to talking about conservation very briefly, because this had so, I mean, there's literally hundreds of examples of conservation wins for this one, so I've just yeah. picked a few. Um, so there was a big win for the bees. Hey. <laughs> um, these are They're winning. They're winning, <laughs> yes, the bees winning. Um, our hardest working pollinators uh, scoring pretty big here so in january the european union's highest court banned all exemptions of an eu re regulation outlawing three popular pesticides all of which are lethal to honeybees and were implicated in colony collapse disorder so that's on top of new regulations that just kicked in banning all but trace amounts of bee killing pesticide residue on food or feed imported to europe so not only we're we saying no you can't have it in in the eu which yeah. technically we're not part of anymore, but our, our, our laws were pretty stringent about it in the UK. Anyway, um, we're also we're refusing to import food from places that also yeah. use it. Yeah. It should have a chilling effect on the pesticides used in the, the developing world because they won't be able to sell food to us. Um, yeah. We do just need to check that the Tories uh, don't try to backroll <laughs> the ban on DMT, which is one of the worst. Oh my god, I can't believe we're having this fight again. Seriously, uh, they're like, yeah, you can use DMT. You mean DMT, the stuff that is really, really toxic, kills off all our pollinating insects, kills off the birds, which then kills off anything that eats the birds, which eventually will result in there being no crops whatsoever. That's when it doesn't get into our water system and cause things like babies being born without limbs. But you want to bring that back. Yeah, you, what could you go genuinely wrong? have to wonder about <laughs> the intelligence of, of some of them. <laughs> but all that aside, essentially, the bees are doing quite well at the moment. <laughs> Yay, bees! <laughs> More of the Earth's non-human inhabitants are safe. So America's Endangered Species Act turns 50 in 2023. The Center for Biological Diversity says it has saved 291 species so far, and that 
80% of species on the endangered list are on the road to recovery. Just take a look at the announcement from the first month of the year. A sparrow in San um, Clement, a rare butterfly in Oregon, and mussels in Virginia are among species to have officially bounced back from the brink, thanks to biologists, and in some cases an assist from the Pentagon. On top of that, a foal was just born to a critically endangered species of horse, thanks in part to cloned DNA. Our species preservation know-how is just getting started. Yeah, and I will add to this that there is a project ongoing at the moment to bring back the woolly mammoth. (laughs) I shit you not, they they are very, very close to having a viable embryo. A part of me is like, this is awesome, but another part of me is like, okay, but stop it there, okay? You guys all watched (laughs) Jurassic uh, Jurassic Park, Park, right? (laughs) Uh, It's really difficult because without like really turning this into a complete downer, this is supposed to be positive stuff. uh, (laughs) We lost so many species. We didn't lose them at all. We destroyed so many species during the 1800s because the church was arguing that extinction was impossible. So hunters were going over to places like America and just having at it and just killing for the sport of it. And within a few years, various species which had never really encountered humans in that way, they certainly had encountered guns in that way, were extinct. And what a lot of biologists are doing, like, well, if we can bring back the mammoth, maybe we can bring back the woolly rhino. If we can bring back the woolly rhino, why not the Carolina parakeet? Uh, we could learn about all these species that we've we've killed, essentially. Yeah, that, that we kind destroyed. of murdered. <laughs> yeah, essentially. And part of me is like, yes, it would really be nice to undo the mistakes of the past. On the other hand, until we have got laws that people will obey when it comes to animals mm-hmm. and there are some people in some ca- some states in america particularly that will not obey these laws until people can get over the idea of things like actually the lynx is supposed to be in the uk so is the wolf and we need to learn to live with these larger animals till people can get around to that i'm not sure we should be introducing animals that we wiped out because we found they were in the way yeah so it's, it's difficult. It, it is. It's also a complicated subject because the fact is that things have now then shifted one way or another. And the moment you try and pull around with a web and stuff like that, you can't actually be certain of the results. You have to be very, very careful with these kinds of things. So it's not, it's not an easy thing. Jules and I disagree when it comes to the wolves, by the way. <laughs> we disagree, but mostly... I mean, I'm not just arguing because I love wolves. I'm arguing <laughs> this position because where what we're living at the moment, just in the UK, is completely unnatural. This is not a natural expression of the ecological web in this this part of the world. Hmm. Um, and you know, I can present you with hundreds of studies from other countries that do live with these animals that say actually this is perfectly possible. So. Um, I think people need to stop being so shit scared of stuff and also I'm not saying it's necessarily something that has to happen but I am saying we should consider that some of the larger animals we need some of the larger grazers if we're going to have some of the larger grazers to improve things like our land um, Mm -hmm. which will benefit us because we will be able to grow food so we won't die out in a few generations time because we can't produce our own food 
um, then we also need some of the larger predators to keep them in check. So it, it is difficult, as Madeline said, she's not wrong when, when she said, you know, you've got to be careful because when you adjust one thing, you're adjusting everything else. Yeah. But the problem is we've adjusted it too far. And I don't think people can see the pitfalls of where we are at the moment if we do not really invest in rewilding. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be things like wolves and lynxes. It could be things like storks and beavers. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All those absolutely. things are important too. So uh, going back to going back to slightly more positive notes, uh, number three, the endangered Bengal tiger numbers have risen. So Bengal tiger numbers were estimated to have fallen from 100,000 in the wild in 1900 to just 1,827 in 1972. So on the verge of extinction. Yeah. Thanks to ongoing and Dunn's conservation efforts, the tide is turning. This year, the Indian government reported record high numbers of the big cat. Now, this is what I was talking about with predators. They are, the tiger is an umbrella species, which means its presence holds the rest of the ecosystem together. So it has a, this, you know, the fact that there's more tigers means that it's had a positive knock-on effect for hundreds of other species and the environment in that area as well. Yeah. There's a long way to go, but the news is still very encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, biodiversity is more protected. So a WWF summit last December in 19, uh, 196 countries pledged to take action against biodiversity loss, pledging resources and changes to laws to ensure this happens. Now, Germany and Holland are leading the way. Finland has taken the radical step of removing nine hydropower dams in order to restore natural rapids and protect salmon and other fish. And in the UK, rewilding and conservation initiatives, especially for wet woodland and marshland, are going strong. Yep. So I don't know if you guys remember last year when we mentioned the beavers were being reintroduced to the Thames area. Mm. Um, but they're doing very nicely, thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All hail the beavers. That Dorset's had beavers back for quite a while. Basically, what happened was some rewilded themselves in the area. The locals of the nearby village found out about it, and everybody kept quiet about it for two decades until there was an established population. <laughs> <laughs> and then when people became aware that there were beavers in the area, there was a big fight over whether they could keep them or not. Um, but they are still there. They they've got their own sort of. I guess there's this kind of like a ecological research station watching these Dorset beavers go about their little beavery lives, and that's <laughs> now what we've got in in sort of Surrey in the Thames area. Yeah. And if people are like, hang on a minute, the beaver's not native to the UK. Yes, it fucking was. It's just that we wiped it out. <laughs> <laughs> We ate all of them and turned them into hats. <laughs> Jesus. But it's absolutely supposed to be here. Do not look at me like that, farmers. I'm sorry it's supposed to be here. Deal with it. Anyway, this is just a small taste of the good news that happened in 2023. It's a simple search um, that will net you much more if you so you go out there have a look just i mean just type randomly good things that happened in 2023 into google and you'll get something yeah if you want to be more specific look at scientific discoveries medical discoveries conservation efforts etc um i haven't even touched on art and music and literature and there's been loads of stuff like i think for the first time ever we had a korean 
top male singer as as a kind of uh, it, it, as part of the Western charts. Was it Jimin from God? What's the name of the band? I have no idea, but I do I know what you're talking about. Okay, it's a K-pop band. Okay, yeah, <laughs> it's the most most famous K-pop band. Everyone just does their nut over this guy. Is um, it it's BTK? Not... Is that what they're called? I don't want to say BTK into in case that's because BT BTK is also the name of a serial killer. So <laughs> oh god, then is it BTS? No. BTS? BTS? I don't know. I really I don't, okay, don't know. Look, I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> but for the people who are into K-pop major win and isn't it great to have some diversity in the charts for example so again i haven't really touched on art and culture in this and there's yeah. lots of stuff to discover there too yeah well we're gonna round up by talking a little bit about some of our sort of speculative fiction highlights for the year because uh you know we are actually a speculative fiction podcast so <laughs> you might be listening at this point and go did i just tune into a science podcast no <laughs> um <laughs> we are speculative fiction so we will finish off with some of our favorite uh, books and films of the year so jules i'm gonna throw you into the pit first <laughs> i might be talking a while uh, okay <laughs> This year has been a year of rediscovering my love of horror. Um, I'm not going to talk about a specific book. I'm just going to mention a few. I've just found so many authors who I've just gone, I love, I love their horror. Um, so shout out to Rachel Harris, Harrison. God, marriage again. Marriage. Uh, <laughs> Rachel Harrison, who wrote Cackle and um, bad dolls and black sheep and the werewolf one that i cannot remember the name of now where it's a mixture of almost cozy horror vibes with some really nasty stuff and it's just been it's wry social commentary as well i've just loved it grady hendrix who does proper really out there horror that is really enjoyable both of them have had new books out this year as well uh, Caitlin Starling, who's got a new book coming out next year called The Last to Leave the Room, which is more of a sci-fi horror where it's, you know, accidentally opening an interdimensional portal in your basement kind of thing. As you do. <laughs> which was, again, really, really awesome. Um, and there's been a bunch of others. So, yeah, for me, a big highlight has been horror this year. I love where horror's going at the moment as a genre. It's really enjoyable. Yes. <laughs> Madeline's like, yes, okay. <laughs> you do you. No judgment. No judgment at all. Um, I just know that you read things that I would not touch with a 10-foot <laughs> barge pole. And not because of anything weird. I'm just... I really don't like being scared in that way. <laughs> They're not scary. Yeah. Okay, Jules, again, we can't trust your definition no. of scary, okay? okay. <laughs> you really cannot trust your trust your definition of scary. Jules has certain ideas about what is scary and what isn't scary, and she's uh let's just say that she does she doesn't kind of match what most people would consider. <laughs> you sounded so defeated. It's not scary. It is, it's scary. Put it back in the well. <laughs> You're not bringing it home. Um so yeah, uh, on my side, it's been really nice to see several kind of TV series which have returned or been renewed for this year. Uh, in particular, obviously, I was super excited to watch um, Good Omens season two. Yeah, same. Um, and having them basically just 100% 
confirm that and the thing is i don't even want to say that it's it's queer uh because yes there were several queer characters and stuff like that in it um but basically confirming what we've all been quietly suspecting for a long time um between Aziraphale and Crowley it was very nice um and it's been really cool to see that it has been renewed for another season so that was one of the ones that I've really enjoyed I've also really enjoyed actually uh watching uh, some things which have been on for a while which I've only kind of really uh, sort of discovered for myself um, including the uh, BBC series Ghosts yeah you mentioned that I think yeah which I've I really really enjoyed it's actually been really nice to kind of get back back in touch with some British comedy yeah you know small-scale British comedy um, it's been a real pleasure and I've really really been enjoying that um what else have i been really into this year i mean i've watched lots of stuff that i've enjoyed um but i think i always kind of go to books first but there's a whole bunch of things that i've watched that i really like let's talk about a couple of seafaring ones which i i know i've already recommended so i won't go into too much detail detail but uh, there was dark water daughter by hm long which kind of has a piratey theme ish but it's Mm -hmm. It's more a case of an incidental, a really interesting magic system and um, amazing world building, which I really loved. Um, the Adventures of Armina al-Sarafi by Shannon Chakraborty is definitely a highlight of the year, where it's kind of a little bit like Sinbad the Sailor, but actually written by someone from that culture who yeah. understands the history, etc. <laughs> Um, but using those kind of legends and things again which was really really it was so much fun and the main character is a middle-aged woman who very much does what she wants um, which was a a lovely thing to see as well so those are two definite ones yeah absolutely Um, in terms of fiction Jules has devastated me this year by continuously giving me really good recommendations um, (laughs) which then just destroy me uh, emotionally and physically uh, for example we both read Divine Rivals this year um, and I am very angry with Jules for that <laughs> I'm so sorry I mean the second book comes out really soon <laughs> I know but still like you have a lot to answer for and you should be <laughs> ashamed of the torment that you put me through. (laughs) I'm a little bit ashamed that I described it as almost cosy because I wasn't thinking about the end when I described it as almost cosy and then you got to the end and you went well I'm at the end of the book and I'm like oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Screw you. I thought it was just going to be a a, a, I thought it was a simple standalone and that that was going to be that but I should have realised that that was never going to be the case. Um, And also, I had to stop listening to it halfway through because I found it so harrowing at some point. <laughs> so again, Jules, uh, Jules cannot be trusted and you should take everything she suggests with a pinch of salt. I'll always suggest something good, but I think the problem is that I have a different emotional range to most people. It doesn't seem to work the same way. So <laughs> I'm very sorry. If I say cosy, there might be scenes of bloodshed. Yes. <laughs> Apologies for that. For me, it was a cosy read. It's very cosy. It's very cosy. Only three people die. 
<laughs> in horrible ways. Uh, yeah, uh, other things I enjoyed. I talked about this, but this is one that keeps coming back to me. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to try and pronounce the author's name again. <laughs> because I mangled it the first time, but The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, where the main character has been murdered in the Sri Lankan Civil War, and um, he has seven moons to dis to help his, his living loved ones find out what happened to him whilst not being able to communicate with them. So he's kind of working within the world of ghosts and demons, etc., and trying to work out what happened to himself because he doesn't know. And that was just such an amazingly good read. It absolutely deserved the Man Booker Prize. I realise it wasn't released this year, but I read it this year. Yeah, it is very, very interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, another cosy, I say in inverted commas, uh, <laughs> book that uh, Jewel suggested to me, uh, which I really, really enjoyed this year, was actually a, a small novella duology, which is Silver in the Wood and Drowned Country yeah. by Emily Tesh. Yeah, it's got a lovely Britishy folksy feel to that. Yeah, it really does. Um, and again, this is this is one of those cases where it's like, oh, it's, yeah, you know, it's kind of cosy. It's this sort of queer romance. You know, guy lives lives in a hut in the woods, and you're like, oh yeah, that sounds great. Until the eldritch horrors arrive, Jules. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like. Again, it felt more cosy than anything. So yeah, okay, you're right. I can't be trusted. I can't be trusted. I'm very, very sorry. Um, it's fine because I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it was definitely. It's one of those books that I keep coming back to in my mind. Um, yeah. I just, I kept like last night. I was just lying in bed thinking about it, and I was like, wow, wow, wow. Still, really. <laughs> I went back there again. Um, yep. Okay, a book that I genuinely found quite disquieting in places but really loved was Our Share of Night by Mariana Enriquez, um, which is set in Argentina, again during the Argentinian uprising. So there was a lot of political turmoil and stuff going on. But mm -hmm. the book itself is horror. There's, there's no two ways about it. It's out and out horror. Uh, the setting, the political turmoil is incidental to the plot. So it informs some of the things that happen but it's not an essential part of it um, mm. meanwhile the real horror it is the stuff that's happening within this very small family and um also the the overarching um magical practitioner family that's trying to get hold of this one little boy mm. uh, it's a great book but it's got some absolutely horrible stuff in it and it, it is structured a bit strangely so like you you'll read 250 pages that don't have any chapters and that's the end of section one and then suddenly you've changed point of view so it's going to piss some people off but i did think it was a masterpiece okay that's definitely a really interesting sounding one although i have to say i read it and i thought i'm not going to recommend this to madeline because she's going to hate most of this book. <laughs> <laughs> nobody in that book's a good guy nobody no. <laughs> um so Moving on to graphic novels, um, I've actually been enjoying several graphic novels this year. Again, not going to talk too much about it um, because, you know, we've mentioned them in the past, but really, really was so thrilled to discover uh, Chaiko's um, Monkey King series, Journey to, Journey to the West um, adaptation, which is masterful, it's beautiful, um, and just generally one of the the best adaptations of Journey to the West that I've I've read so far. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, I also really enjoyed go, coming back to Ponderworld, which has been 
has started to be updated again this year, um, which is really, really lovely. And also being introduced via Jules to um, Bloodstain. Which is cosy. Okay. Which is which is weirdly cosy, yes. Despite, <laughs> Despite the title, the... it's cosy. Yeah. <laughs> that one actually is cosy. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got two more that I will mention. I will mention The Will of the Many by James Islington. I've never read any James Islington. He's been on my reading list for, like, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is his new release, and... It was amazing. It's just such a great book. It's a, it is kind of like a, a typical hero's journey story, but it's set in a world that is kind of post-apocalyptic, which somehow has risen from the ashes, as this, um, kind of like a new Roman Senate kind of thing, where you've got that very strict hierarchy. You can climb the ranks, but it's very difficult, and there's a strange magic system in play as well. Um, the main character is actually the lost prince of a nation that's been wiped out and he's just been surviving in this essentially new Roman Empire Um, and he's not even really looking for revenge he's just looking to survive and not have to cede his will which is kind of the magic practice where they take your will in order to make themselves stronger Um, and he gets basically taken up by a Roman senator. He's not a Roman senator, but that's essentially what he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and made to act as a spy at a military academy. And it all goes on from there. It was absolutely compelling. Really, really amazing book. Really enjoyed it. Uh, the other thing I will mention is the film adaptation of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which was an amazing adaptation of the book. I know the book underwent a lot of criticism, mostly by people who hadn't read it, who said that they didn't think focusing on the story of how a white, rich, privileged man became even more privileged and rich, etc. I, on the other hand, took the perspective of, I would like to know how someone who is like that became like that. And it was a really interesting villain origin story, which rang really true and still had the same subtlety and you know political intelligence that the hunger games had but from a different perspective it's Mm. a story that kind of you know uh Coriolanus snow and katniss everdeen could have ended up being the same not literally the same person but they could have become the same type of person yeah except that katniss always had that pinch of something that relationship with her sister that made her choose kindness Whereas yeah. Coriolanus never had that. Yeah. He always chose pride rather than yeah. kindness. And it's just that very small difference set them on very different tracks. It's a really, really interesting book. And the film, I thought, did it really well. So, you know, I don't don't know what a whole bunch of reviewers in The Guardian were talking about where they said it was it was boring and uninteresting, etc. It's a long film, definitely. But if you found that boring, then I worry about your attention span, <laughs> frankly. It's your problem. Yeah, we, we don't tend to agree with most of the Guardian reviews, do we? <laughs> no, we don't. I don't. I, I've seen a few since then who really enjoyed it. So obviously it's an opinion piece thing. Yeah. But I do find it a bit weird that the first reviews that seem to come out from anything from the Guardian are nearly always universally negative. Yeah. Or they're falling over themselves to be positive about something that you can kind of tell they don't actually like. Yeah. I find it very suspect. Anyway, I thought it was excellent. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Okay. Um, 
I'm going to touch very quickly on urban fantasy because this year has been a big year for urban fantasy for me. Um, obviously, we had uh, Cian Rowan and uh, Heather J. Harris um, on the show this year. We've both been enjoying their books a lot. Um, and obviously, of course, I've been really, really excited about all the new releases for Harker and Blackthorn. <laughs> you say all the new releases. I've managed one novel and one novella this year. It's been a very poor showing. Hey, <laughs> that is two. <laughs> Please don't put yourself down. <laughs> yes. No, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed um, continuing on sort of with those with the guys it's been really really interesting particularly the most recent um release obviously with eddie and uh steve um really enjoyed it that was a very fun fun foray into the unknown <laughs> thank you i would like to say that i've really enjoyed madeline's urban fantasy this year i mean the rest of you can basically go hang unfortunately <laughs> because there's no release date and I can't really talk about what I read but it was great, <laughs> I recommend it <laughs> it'll come, it'll come I just want to build up a backlog okay <laughs> um, and yeah I think all in all this has been a really good year for um, some amazing books coming out obviously there were the strikes and things like that which did affect the cinematic world and, and tv and things like that um and as they should um and i'm very glad to see that there has been progress with regards to that um and i'm looking forward to all the things that are to come in 2024 there's some really exciting releases coming i've got my fingers crossed that the that the next lies of Locke lamora book is actually going to come out in 2024 yeah it's been pushed back again isn't it has it please don't tell me it has well no i meant from when it was supposed to come out oh yeah year. from when it was supposed to come out you almost give me a heart attack there <laughs> like... no i don't have i don't have internal knowledge here don't worry yeah <laughs> What do you know that I don't know? <laughs> Please tell me I don't have to wait for much longer. The suspense is killing me. Yeah. Okay, so that's one thing you're looking forward to in 2024. I'm yeah. honestly, this is so, it's going to sound so self-aggrandizing. I'm really looking forward in 2024 to getting the the next four Harker and Blackthorn novels out. I'm hoping to get them all done and out mm -hmm. and there'll be another Harker and Blackthorn novella as well, which will be Steve's novella, so you'll finally get something properly from his perspective. Yay! Um, well, you say yay, but you don't know what that story is and it's not, you know, it's pretty dark. So I don't <laughs> it's mind. It's definitely um, cosy. <laughs> I, I, uh, that's fine. Look, it doesn't have to be cosy. It doesn't all... It, I, it should, only needs to be cosy if you've told me it's cosy and I've gone into it going, all right, let's go for some cosy things. I've had a harrowing day. I'm going to read something cosy. Oh, God, what is this? <laughs> yeah, OK, I'll try to do better. Um, but yeah, I am not just because I want it to be finished, but it's um, it's more that I want the experience of going through those stories. So, yeah. So, yeah. And also I've now got melanie beckett kind of nipping at my heels saying that you know it's her turn to have her books written so 
you never know. <laughs> yeah. There might be some of that as well. Don't, don't you also have some like historical things you need to be writing, Jill? Yeah, I'm sure you should write. Who's it that You thought we wouldn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, yes, I do. Um, I need to get in the right frame of mind for that. <laughs> yeah. I have no, been I... doing the research, I'd like to say, and I have been trying to do the planning. I'm pretty sure my publisher's not listening to this podcast, but if you are, <laughs> I'm not doing nothing, I promise. <laughs> yeah, um, lots of exciting projects for next year, lots of different things coming out. Um, I'm really excited for it. And I'm... I'm not going to say I'm glad to see the back of 2023. I feel like it's been, you know, an up and down, a strange year, as we've said. Um, but it's been very nice to see all these kind of really interesting books, films and things coming out. And I'm super excited for all the things that are to come. So. Yeah, definitely. So... We are now going to finish off our last episode of 2023. I could have just said our last episode and then left people hanging. <laughs> Wait, what? You're not coming back? We are. We will be back in the new year. Um, and now all that's left is to wish you all a fantastic new year. To thank you for listening um, and sticking with us and being such wonderful fans and we really look forward to catching up with you guys next year yeah happy new year guys see you in 2024 happy new year bye bye you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes for more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.